green. So, all right. Anyway, that's the only announcement for tonight. And so be mindful about that next week. And uh, we'll get into our Bible study and then we'll uh, uh, go to the Lord in prayer and go over our prayer, prayer list as well. Uh, but let's, let's start out and just pray tonight. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you this evening and we thank you, Lord, for a beautiful day that you've given us. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to uh, gather with your people here this evening. Thank you, Father, for those who have come, and uh, we ask that you just bless this service, bless this uh, Bible study and this time of prayer, and uh, Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word. May we glean uh, much from it, and may we grow closer to you. May we, uh, Father, constantly be refreshed, Father, in how great and mighty you are. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, tonight we're going to be in Isaiah chapter number 40, Isaiah 40. And uh, we're going to look at verse 25 down through verse number 31. It's going to be our text uh, uh, for tonight. And we will actually look at some portions of uh, the chapter before this as well, earlier in the chapter, I mean. Isaiah 40. Uh, I love this chapter of Scripture. It's, it's so rich uh, and deep as to the, the character and nature of God and uh, really comforting truths as you come down to the end of the chapter. Uh, for God's people and strength in Him. And I've titled the message this evening, Waiting on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord. And that comes from verse 31, which we know is a very popular passage, popular verse. Um, but it's, it means even more when it's taken in light of all that is said before it uh, for us. And uh, so we're going to begin in verse 25 and come down through verse 31 uh, together. Notice the scripture says, To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary, they shall walk and not faint. Any of us have a, a struggle with waiting? I think I do. <laughs> I'm not one that likes waiting. We might struggle with waiting. We might struggle with patience or um, things going out of our control maybe. We've probably all been in that situation where we've been in a waiting room waiting for the doctor and we sat there and uh, maybe sat there so long we wonder if they forgot you were there. Uh, we've been there many times, especially through Bethany's pregnancy. That, that office was so overrun. Uh, sometimes you sit in that waiting room for about an hour. And uh, sometimes you'd see uh, someone come in after you, and they get seen before you, and then you really wonder if you've been forgotten. And you might get a little frustrated. But we're all human. We tend to want uh, control and immediate results. We don't like to wait. We don't like to feel forgotten. But sometimes there are seasons of life that we enter into these kind of experiences where we are required to wait, we're required to rest in the Lord and His control and in His timing. Now what does Scripture teach us for these seasons? They teach us right here in this, in this passage that we must learn to wait upon Him, 
and to find strength in him. And really, this passage is, is a wonderful text uh, that it declares how great God is and how dependent we as his people are upon him. Now, we'll find in this passage that with Israel, as a little bit backdrop for you, they have somewhat of an assumption on them in verse 27, that they've been hidden from the Lord or forgotten in a sense. If you look at verse 27, he says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? If you look at this in context, it seems that uh, they maybe feel forgotten, they seem hopeless, as if God does not see them anymore. And after all, we study through the book of Isaiah, there has been a proclamation of judgment on them and on other nations for their iniquity. And the Lord does bring judgment and did bring judgment on his people for their unrepentant hearts. And so when you look at this statement in verse 27, uh, some portray this and assume it to be the, uh, a statement that where they felt abandoned while in Babylonian exile. Uh, others see it more as a period when God allowed the Assyrian army to attack and defeat Judah, except Jerusalem, that they feel forgotten during that time of judgment, which could also be true. You'll see references throughout Isaiah uh, about the difficulty of those specific days. But regardless of the exact timing of what's being referenced here, we find that the same experience is what they're experiencing. They feel like they're in darkness, they're in judgment, like God has forgotten them. And so God reminds them through this text just how big he really is and that there really is no hope outside of him. There is no strength outside of him. I've come to this question with this text in the Bible as a whole. Do you think it's important that we have a high view of God? I'd say it is. I think one of the greatest problems in modern Christianity is that we do not see God as highly as he ought to be seen. Um, in a lot of circles, God has brought down to our level uh, where he is, has to you know, be where we, can, you know, where we can understand him and reach him and touch him in that sense. But God is beyond us. He's so much bigger than us. He's not one that can be brought down to the level of man. And through this text, we see how big God is and in relation to his people where his people must be entirely dependent upon him and to wait upon him. Now, what does it mean to wait on the Lord? As we look at verse 31, it says, those who wait on the Lord. Now, the word wait carries the meaning of to await or hope. Uh, Look at another dictionary, it says to wait or look eagerly for. So, it's more than just sitting in a waiting room and waiting for your turn. That's not the kind of waiting that's here, although it may imply patience. Waiting on the Lord truly involves faith. It involves looking unto God as your confidence, as your hope. And we know that hope is intricate uh, to the Christian life, not a hope in the worldly sense as if, well, I hope this might happen, there's a question mark. Hope in the Christian sense is an exclamation point behind it. It's a confidence, and it's it's an assurance. And so I want to take just a moment tonight just to look at this text and some other portions of this chapter that may help ourselves come afresh to seeing how big and mighty God is and also our need to wait and rely upon him uh, throughout our life. Notice with me in our notes tonight, I want you to see, number one, the infinite nature of God. The infinite nature of God. And the first thing we point out here is God's powerful character. 
the power of God is really emphasized throughout this text. And uh, I believe that this is one of the most essential needs for God's people and to be reminded of is who He is. You say, well, I already know who God is. I do too. But have you ever come to a point in your life where things get kind of hectic and you just you need a reminder of who He is? You've always known who He is, but you need a, a refresher, something brought fresh to the mind and soul uh, of how vast God is. And, and, and when those refreshers come, it's, it's just like it strikes, cuts deep to the heart. Uh, we've all had those moments as Christians as we've looked and read the Word of God. But God brings this reminder to His people of who He is throughout this passage. And look at verse 25. I, I love this verse. He says, To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. God challenges His people with a question. And that's a rhetorical question. A rhetorical question is a question that already has an answer within it. It doesn't require you really to answer it. It answers itself. And the answer to this is that really there's no one like him. Who can you compare me with, God says? And the answer to that is no one. There's no one or nothing that can compare with God. But when you look at where this verse is placed, why does God ask this question and how do we know that answer? How do we know it's a rhetorical question? Well, because of what God has said previously in the chapter. We're going to back up for a moment and look at from some scriptures here in this chapter. Look at with me. Let's look at verse 12 through verse 17 for a moment. Let's read this passage. Verse 12 through verse 17. Speaking of God, Isaiah writes and says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop of a bucket, and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. What do you see here with the character of God? Well, you look at verse 12 for a moment, and we see God is described as the one who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. Now, we all measure a little bit of water every now and then, right? Especially we who cook or don't cook. I mean, I don't cook a whole lot, but every now and then, I'll get a hankering for waffles, and uh, I'll have to use a measuring cup to measure out the milk and the water and what's needed, and and I'd be lost without the directions on the box. I don't know how to do it by myself, Uh, but uh, that measuring glass, you know, it can only measure so much, right? But you think about what God's saying here. He says he measures the waters. What are the waters? It's it's all the waters, (laughs) all the waters. Think of that for a moment. Have you ever just looked out across the ocean? It's beyond what your eyes can see. You can't even encompass all of it with one viewpoint of your vision. And so there's no instrument that could measure the vastness of the waters on earth. There's no instrument by man that he has made, no instrument that we could just put all the ocean, all the seas, all the rivers, all of them into any kind of measuring instrument at all. And uh, so to have such a thing would be impossible. Notice what he says. God measures the whole of the waters himself, and where does he measure it? In the hollow of his hand. 
I mean, we've all got a hollow of our hand, don't we? It's just this little, this little, you know, piece in our palm here. And he says he measures the entirety of the waters in the palm of his hand. Now, you look at the palm of your hand. How much water can you fit in your hand? Not a whole lot, right? But this imagery, just, it just it strikes to me in my heart as I just think about the vastness of God. How big he truly is. Uh, this, this language that's being used... Uh, it puts into perspective how mighty God is. You, you come on down and look at verse 12 again. He says, he has marked off the heavens with a span. Well, what's a, what's a span? A span is typically the, the distance from your, your, your pinky to your thumb, right? Uh, if it's spread out like this, your little finger uh, to your thumb when it's fully extended. And, and God says he measures the heavens with a span. Well, what's the heavens? Oh, the heavens here, that's the vastness of space. Galaxies upon galaxies upon galaxies with the stars. And uh, you think about it, mankind cannot even know that all, all that God has placed in the heavens. Man can only reach so far with his advances in technology. And even as far as he reaches, he only barely scratches the surface of all that is out there. He can only reach so far. And God declares that he has marked off the heavens with a span, his span. I mean, that that shows us how small we are. We look to the heavens, and we can really only look in awe of God's handiwork. The Bible says in Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. That's something that's always fascinated me. Ever since I was a, a young boy or even teenager, just... Walking outside looking at the stars, if you've got a clear night and you, you see the vast number of stars out there and you just, you just feel so small, but you behold the wonder of how beautiful they are and they look so far away in everything. And he has measured them with his hand. He has, they fit in the span of his hand and, and he has put them there simply for his glory. They declare his glory. Now you continue verse 12, what's he say? He's enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. I mean, can mankind put mountains on scales and weigh them? No. Can they collect all the dust of the earth and figure out a measurement of it? No. I mean, all of this portrays this faithful, mighty creator who is infinite. Now you come on down to verse number 13 and 14 for a moment and you see, God's knowledge is beyond any other. We touched this a little bit last week as we looked at Psalm 139, but look at verse 13. He says, Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Who did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? You know, all of us, we have to be taught things as we grow, Right? I mean, from the time we're children, we're constantly teaching and teaching and teaching and teaching uh, how things work and what to do, what not to do. We're, we're learning, right? But what about God? Who, who did God learn from? No one. God doesn't learn anything. God doesn't have to learn anything. He's all-knowing. He's omniscient. He, he doesn't get counsel from us. And yet it's fascinating that man likes to think that he could do things better than God uh, in this world. Uh, he does, God knows what he's doing. He's designed things perfectly. You know, Paul quoted this in Romans eleven thirty four. He said, for who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? You come on down through verse 15 and through 17, and what do we find with this passage? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. 
and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are the beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. You notice what he says. This, this, this shows us that God's above all the nations. He's the one who reigns over the nations. He's sovereign over the nations. He says they're like a drop from a bucket, that they are like nothing before him. Now, how small is a drop in a bucket? What power does a drop in a bucket have? Not much. What power does a full bucket have? <laughs> Not a whole lot. You know, nations, we look at our world today, they tend to get big-headed thinking they're mighty and powerful because of their military might or their technological advances and all the things that they show themselves to do. Nowadays, we, you know, we have nations, you know, flaunting their nuclear weapons and scaring a lot of people. That stuff really doesn't scare me. You know why? Because I know who rules the nations. I know who's greater than the nations. I know who is above the nations. You see, no nation really is mighty in God's eyes. No ruler is supreme in God's eyes. Only God is mighty. And you understand that he can bring a nation low overnight, no matter how mighty they seem to be. He alone governs the nations and their rulers. Now, notice this in Proverbs 21.11. He says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Now, if that doesn't show you the sovereignty of God over the rulers of the world... Um, I don't know what does. He is the one who is truly in control. And we see that example throughout the book of Isaiah. You'll find oracle after oracle of judgment, pronouncement of judgment after judgment by this nation and this nation. And uh, God would stir up a nation to come and attack another nation as a form of judgment. He often did that with Israel. He would stir up the leader of Assyria or Babylon as an instrument uh, of his own judgment. And we see how God uses that uh, and in his sovereign control. Then Isaiah brings attention to so-called man-made gods. You look at verse 18 through 20 for a moment. He says uh, the question again, To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains? He too is... He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. You know, through this passage, God's mocking those who make idols. He's mocking these, 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 the very thought of such gods as these idols. They're not gods. They're just materials that are structured by man to fit his vain imagination of a god. We see how foolish man is in his depravity. There's but one true and living God, and he's not material. He is not material. He is not a created being. He is the eternal being, the one who has no beginning, the one who has no ending. He is above it all. And so thus we see, as you come on down, what does he say in verse 21? He says, do you not know, do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. You look at God who sits on the circle of the earth, 
It says its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. That imagery reveals really how small we are and how big God is. He reiterates that he's the one who has stretched out the heavens like a curtain and made creation a, an inhabitable place, specifically our world, a place for us to inhabit. He brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as empty. Seems like everyone that gets in some form of power thinks they have a whole lot of power. And, but what happens once, the, once they're no longer in power? They're just another man, right, in the society. And what we find, we have to remember who is the sovereign king over the world and over the nations, over our own nations, over our own life. This is his universe, and he governs it as he pleases. And that brings us to the question that we opened with in verse 25. You see what led us up to where we began in our text. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Take into consideration all that's been said from verse 12 all the way up to verse 25, and God asks the question again, who can you compare to me? Who can you compare to me? Such a creator as I, a God as I, the one true living God. Who is eternal like him? Who's all-knowing like him? Who's all-powerful like him? Who's all-present like him? Who is sovereign as he is? No one. Absolutely no one. And that's what makes him the holy one. You see, holiness is not just about God's righteousness and perfection. To be holy means that you're completely beside yourself. That there's none that is even on the same playing field as you. You're completely unique. And that is who God is. He is entirely beside himself, uniquely separate from all other beings in all of creation. So this is his character. Notice with me, letter B, we see God's character, his powerful character, but we see his power in creation. And this just kind of reiterates some of what we saw, but it comes down through our text a little further. As you come down to verse 26... All right, all that's been said is to bring ourselves to look at this together. He says, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. You notice he tells his people to lift up your eyes on high and see who created these things. Now, next time you feel like things are out of control, go outside, lift up your eyes, and look to the sky, look to the stars, and remember who created it all. Things are not out of control. Now, the world may get chaotic at times, your own life might get chaotic at times, but it doesn't mean that things are out of control. Now, I want you to see another passage here, referencing this to Christ. Go to Colossians chapter 1, Colossians 1 and verse 15 through verse 17. I love this passage of, in, in Colossians of, of, of Christ and his creative power and uh, his, his ministry even now. Uh, but Colossians chapter 1, if you look at verse uh, 15 through verse 17 for a moment, this is a great uh, passage really of praise and exaltation of, of Christ. And I want to read just these couple verses to you. Colossians 1 and verse uh, 15 through 17 and Paul speaking of Christ, and he, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. 
and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, you, you look at this that parallels John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So Paul's reiterating that same truth about the preexistent eternal Christ. But notice, not only did Christ create, but you look at verse 17. It also says, by him all things hold together. You see, he's the creator and the sustainer of our world, of our universe. I mean, he designed it perfectly for us to live in this world. I mean, if we were just any closer to the sun, we'd burn up. If we were any further away, we'd freeze. I mean, you think about all the details, things that are so complex in our creation and the design, and we see how God has, has, has fra- uh, framed it all together. Our Lord is the sovereign over his universe. Now, to further demonstrate this, In Isaiah, what does he say? He says, he brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Now, you notice that he calls all the host by name. All the host by name. The stars, the whatever you want to to reference this. You notice that many many in the ancient world, they worship these so-called gods of the heavens certain stars and the moon god, the sun god, and different forms of astrology. But God makes it clear that he created every star. He created the heavens, so they flow from him. They're not gods. They're created, the entire host. And God has them numbered, but not only does he have them numbered, he also has them named. Now, you think I struggle with names. I mean, I'm starting to get your names quite a, pretty, a lot better by now. And uh, But imagine this, that that God has every one of them named. We can't even number them. He's got them all named. Tells them all by name. Psalm 147.4, he determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. How many stars are there? Well, it's impossible for man to number them. Astronomers estimate, and this was maybe an older estimate, but they estimated that there are more than 400 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. That's our Milky our, our galaxy. And that there are, there are 125 billion galaxies in the universe. Now, that's definitely a guesstimate. They don't know the fact, but they, they can't put a number on Man can only estimate. And God has it numbered, and he has them named. Think about that. How does God create all these things that number the stars and give them names? He says it's by the greatness of his might, because he has the power to do so. Because he's almighty. He has no limitation to his power. The greatness of his might. He's strong in power. Not one is missing. Not one is missing. Not one star. Not one element of his creation. That's our mighty God. His might is beyond really what we can fathom with our minds. And uh, I think it's easy to see how big he is. But this is in contrast to something. We see number two in our notes We see the infinite nature of God, firstly, but we see the finite nature of man. This is all contrasted because he he brings us down to man and his growing weary and fainting and being weak. And this is exactly really what Scripture portrays of us. And I want to point out, firstly, that man is a frail creature. He is a frail creature, feeble creature. We see how great God is, but man is frail. He's feeble. Man likes to think himself as powerful and 
persevering and strong, but how easily it is that man grows weak and weary. It doesn't take a whole lot. Uh, We are weak creatures. We have no true power of our own selves. Man thinks he does, but he doesn't. Man likes to flaunt his inventions, his accomplishments, his knowledge, his military power, whatever you could name. But what is all of that compared to the glory of God, to the might of God? Nothing. It's nothing. I read in a book this quote, I don't remember who said it, but it always stuck with me. It says, just a glimpse of the glory of God will rip all metals from our chest, strip us of all titles, and knock us off our pedestal. There's all kinds of titles and pedestals and medals in this world, isn't there? But one glimpse of the glory of God removes them all. It removes them all. What can we boast of? What can I boast of? Nothing. What do we have in us that was not given to us? Nothing. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast if you, as if you did not receive it? I get a kick watching professional sports. You know, people like LeBron James and others, they'll go down and they'll have this really fancy dunk. And then they beat their chest and they talk trash to the other team and players. And then they'll get on their newsroom after the game, you know, the newscast after the game and boast of how great they are. And I just think to myself, you couldn't dunk a ball if God didn't give you that ability. You couldn't run down the court without legs. You couldn't breathe without lungs. You couldn't think without the mind God gave you. You see, God deserves all the glory for everything in our life. Every good in our life, it comes from him. And all the bad comes from us. <laughs> I can tell you that. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I believe that we must confess as humanity that our strength is small. We are frail. We little by little fade away. And that's what Isaiah presents even in this chapter earlier on. Now look backwards to verse 6 through verse 8 for a moment. We see this already been established. Verse 6 through verse 8 in Isaiah 40. He says, "A A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So what's man compared to? He's compared to the grass. He's compared to the flower uh, of the field. And what happens to these things? They wither and they fade away. Season after season shows us that, right? Things die and then they grow back. They fade away. So so what we find is that this aspect of nature, it's a picture of human life and how fleeting it truly is. Our life is here and then it just fades away. We're here literally just for a moment, a blip. I mean, mean, if, if there was a timeline for eternity, I don't think you can put it on a timeline, but if there was one, you and I barely even appear. We are, we are so small. We're so small. We're so weak. James 4 and verse 14 really summarizes this all. He says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears. 
appears for a little time and then vanishes away. A mist, a vapor. We've all seen vapor. If you're cooking on the stove or driving through the farm, it's gone. It's there and it's gone. And that's, that's the portrayal of our life. And friend, when someone comes to their moment of death, the frailty of their life is more real than ever. And I've not come to that point yet. By God's grace, I'll get but each of us, when we get to that moment, we're, we're nearing our death. We, there's no mistaking how frail we are, how weak we are, how fleeting we are. And what happens with us in our life is that we forget how frail we are. Sometimes we get a little bit too high-minded and think we can tackle the world, and we can't. And we need to pray like David sometimes, who prayed this in Psalm 39, verse 4. Oh, Lord, make me to know my end. What is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. David wanted to be reminded of that. Reminded of how fleeting he truly was. And friend, when we forget how frail we are, and we forget how mighty God is, we set ourselves up for failure in our life. We must remember these two things. Man is not only a uh, frail creature, he's a fainting creature. And this goes hand in hand with being frail. Now, how often have we come to times where we feel like we're about to give out, that we have no more strength? You know, there's been times where I've been exercising, and, you know, when you're getting ready to lift weights, you know, you're full of energy, and you're ready to go, and you start lifting weights, and you feel good. You feel like you could lift for hours, right? <laughs> but uh, you just step in there, and uh, you get a few sets in, and you're huffing and puffing, and your muscles have been tore down a little bit. You realize, man, I don't have the strength like I had 10 minutes ago. I've been there many times, not as many as of late. I need to get back to it, and uh, I've been putting it off. But uh, when, you, when you overdo your exercise, you can even call it, you cause yourself to be weak, but if you don't have the right nutrition, rest, you can even cause yourself to faint. I've done that before. I've overworked myself on an exercise before, only come to go lay on the couch and pass out because I was weak. I felt strong 30 minutes ago. I mean, I thought I could handle anything. But then you go through something that really wears you down, and you get weak. And, friend, we, we often experience that sort of thing in our life in different measures, not just physically, but many things come to us in our life that can easily weaken us uh, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, even physically. Sometimes trials make us very weak. Some of the suffering and affliction we endure and so we all come to these sorts of things. We experience these things. David, we, we read through his life. He experienced this over and over uh, as he went through trial after trial, being persecuted and all the things he went through. In Psalm 6 and verse 6, he says, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed, bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. He's a weary man in this scenario. Consider Elijah who came to a point where he just said, Lord, just take me out of here. I'm giving up. I'm done. We've all probably been there at some point. But this is how God's people feel in our text, as they say in verse 27. They feel as if God is hidden from them, and they have no hope. He says in verse 27, Why do you say, O Jacob? This is what they're saying. My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. They feel weak. They feel as if, God's not with them. And if we look at verse 30, we find this truth that it is true that we faint. He says, even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men 
shall fall exhausted. Now, we know that as one grows older, their body grows feebler. It's the sad reality of life and what sin has done. We, me and my cousin were talking about it just yesterday, how, how it is that sin has affected us. Because you think about it, we, uh, without sin, we live, right? We're meant to live forever, but sin enters and brings death. And so what was once strong becomes weak as a result of sin and humanity. But God says here that, that even the youth who are supposed to be strong, they will faint. Proverbs tells us in Proverbs 20 and 29, the glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair. But notice the glory of young men is their strength, but he says even the, God says even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall fall exalted. No one is exempt from becoming weary and fainting. Why is that? Because all of us are still flesh and bone. doesn't matter if you're physically strong or not. We're all just flesh and bone in need of God's strength. You know, Jesus warned his disciples in Matthew 26, 41. He said, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but what? The flesh is weak. Flesh is weak. Now, I identify with that. Our spirit's willing and our flesh is weak. We've all experienced that. But this, this shows us how deeply, how deeply we need God and his strength in our life. How deeply we need the power of the Almighty. We are weak, but he is strong. So how do we receive that strength? How do we continue? Notice with me number three in our notes. We see the exclusive source of strength. And that strength is only in God. Only God can strengthen us. Only God can strengthen us. Because we're weak and God is almighty... Our strength can only come from him. Now, Israel was to recognize this afresh, that their strength and hope was in God alone. We see that God is the giver of this. Look at verse 28 with me. God says to them, after they quoted, he quotes them saying this, that feeling like they're forgotten, he says, Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint. Or grow weary, his understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increaseth strength. What's the source of strength? It's God. It's the eternal creator. It's the one who has no beginning and no ending. The one who does not get weary. He doesn't have to sleep and get rest like we do. He's just infinitely powerful, full of strength. And so then that brings us to this beloved verse in verse 31. Notice that we see that God is the one who gives it. But then he says in verse 31, But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Where does this strength come from? From the Lord. And it is to those who wait upon him. Isaiah chapter number 12 and verse 2 tells us this. Behold, God is my salvation, I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. So if we're weak and weary, how is it that we can have renewed strength? The application here is that we wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord, that we trust in him. That we put our confidence in him, that we rely upon him, that we look unto him. And notice how great... How great this strength is to his people. He says that they shall mount up with wings like eagles. I love that imagery. 
the eagle's probably my favorite animal in the world. I mean, I love seeing them. I don't see them often, but they'll man out, mount up with wings as eagles. Why eagle? Why not a hawk? Why not an owl? Why not something else? Well, in the realm of flying creatures, none compares to the eagle. They're mighty. They're majestic. They're powerful. Their wings can span from six to eight feet, some even bigger. They dominate the sky, flying higher and faster than any other uh, other bird. And even when a storm comes, the, the winds allow the eagle to fly higher and faster and see further. Storms typically would uh, hinder most other birds, but to the eagle, it's not a problem for him. And God compares our renewed strength that comes from him like the imagery of a mighty eagle. And friend, when God gives us the strength that we need, he gives us just enough that we need when we need it. He always does that. I've always found that. That in my times of weakness, whether it be emotionally or mentally or whatever, spiritually, that the strength that I needed, God gave me, and he gave me just enough that I needed when I needed it. You find a reference here in Psalm 103 and verse 5, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. There you have another reference for that. So letter B, it's just plain application for us. We must wait on the Lord. We must do what is called upon us to do in verse 31. This beloved verse, we've, it's very popular, but it, it, in light of all that you look at ahead of it, who God is, what Israel's saying, that you've forgotten us, God, we're weary, God. We see who God is in, in, as, as our strong, almighty God. We must see that our strength comes from him and waiting on him. But we have to realize this as well, that as long as we think ourselves to be big and strong and independent, we're not going to view God as we ought to view him, and we won't have the strength that we need either. We cannot have that kind of strength if we are exalting ourselves. If we have a high view of ourselves, it needs to be opposite. We ought to have an exceedingly high view of God and a low view of ourselves, a humble view of ourselves. I love this quote from John Owen. He says, we can have no power from Christ unless we live in a persuasion that we have none of our own. And I testify of that. I will testify to you tonight. I do not have any power of my own. None. Everything in me, is of Christ. All of my strength is of Christ. Now, Israel, through their history, they had grown so self-dependent in their sin that they were brought low. But the good thing about God is that he brings restoration to his people because we've all done that at one time or another in our own life. So waiting on the Lord, it requires humility to depend on Christ, and we must see him alone as our strength. One last passage, and then I'll be done. Psalm 27, I want to read just a couple verses here. Psalm 27 and verse 1, and then I'm going to look at verse 13 and 14 as well. Psalm 27, David says, The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? Who's the stronghold of your life tonight? Is it you or is it Christ? It must be Christ. Now look at verse 13 and 14. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, And what does David say? Wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. He uses that. Wait. Wait. Have confidence. Have hope. Rest. Rely upon our great God. Because he alone 
is the one who strengthens us and not we ourselves. So I don't know where we are in our Christian life tonight, but I do know that we daily need the strength of God. We daily need His strength. We need to remember afresh always just how big and mighty He is, how small and feeble we are. And I believe that when we have those things in perspective and we wait upon the Lord, we will truly, uh, truly be strengthened and renewed with what we need from our great God. That's what Israel needed. I believe it's what I need. I believe it's what we all need as his people. So I pray this words encourage you and uh, challenge you to look afresh um, at how great and mighty our God is uh, throughout this chapter. All right, well, that'll close our Bible study, and we're going to go into our time of uh, 